Lady. Good morning, Grace. I ask you to just bring your conversations to a close. I know there's lots of things to talk about. The last time I was up here, it was a much emptier building, so this is, this is wonderful. This is great to see us all here today. Um, well, it's, it's the time in our service where we come together and we hear from God's word. And so uh, to read God's word for us, we have Hannah. The scripture reading for this morning comes from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord God, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, God. Thanks, Hannah. Well, as Graham mentioned, we, uh, we're taking a break from our series in Acts, and uh, we are starting a new series, an Advent series, as we look forward to Christmas Day. And so the title of our Advent series is Every Story Whispers His Name. And this, uh, this title we're actually borrowing from the JSB, or the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a children's illustrated Bible uh, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Uh, if you've got kids and GT kids, you probably know it. Um, and I think it's a really fitting title for us uh, as we explore over the next few Sundays. Uh, we're going to look at four different stories from the Old Testament, and we're going to see how they actually do whisper 
Jesus' name, and they do talk in some way about the arrival of our coming king. Now, I know many of us, if you're like me, uh, if, if we read the Old Testament at all, uh, we probably have some trouble with it, right? Um, it seems like it's ancient stories, it's law codes, uh, it doesn't have a ton of relevance for our very modern lives today. And I want to tell you that it couldn't be further from the truth. The Old Testament is, in, in some ways, like a detective novel, where the authors are giving us hints, they're giving us foreshadows, um, they're trying to tell us where the story's going. They're trying to tell us what is the fate of the world, our world, what God has done, and what he is still doing in and through the person of Jesus. And so in our story today, we see Abram. He's facing a problem that I'm sure uh, many of us have probably faced before. Perhaps we're facing it this morning. We're wondering, along with Abram, if God is going to fulfill his promises. We're wondering if God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And so if that's something that you've ever experienced, if that's something that you've ever wondered, well, this story is for you. And so uh, for you note takers, here's your three, three main points, your three headings. Okay, we see three components in God's promise to Abraham here in our passage. The first one, the promise is sure. The second one, the promise has started. And the third, the promise is sealed. The promise is sure, the promise has started, and the promise is sealed. So let's begin. The promise is sure. Our story picks up in chapter 15 of Genesis with a man named Abraham. Uh, A few chapters ago, uh, if you've read Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, uh, God speaks to him for the first time, and he calls him out of his home with a startling promise. And that promise was that through Abram's family, God was going to bless the entire world. And he was going to give his family a land to possess. Now, what's the problem? Well, Abram and Sarah at this time are pretty old. Okay? Abram was 75 when God first called him. And they had no children. Now, 10 years go by between Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. And so we find Abram wondering... Where is this promise? Where is the offspring and the family God promised me? Is God going to follow through with his word? And so what happens is God comes to Abram in a vision. And in this vision, Abram actually pushes back against God. It's a really fascinating interaction. You can almost hear the frustration in his voice, the hopelessness. He says, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliza of Damascus. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was pretty common practice for a childless couple to adopt a son, someone out of their household, usually a servant, um, who would work in their household, who would eventually inherit their possessions, um, and it would act like a substitute heir. But that's not what God promised, is it? And so, before we go on, there's, there's a point of application here to us that I want to I touch on in that Abraham voices his grievances with God. Now, this is something that perhaps a lot of us are afraid to do. We aren't sure if we can go to God because, well, what if he gets mad at us? Or even worse, what if he doesn't listen at all? And so this fear of approaching God as we are with our doubts, with our fears, it actually erodes the relationship we have with him. I mean, what does it say about our relationship with God if we're afraid to go with him, to go to him with our doubts or our worries? 
I mean, what kind of relationship do we have with God if it's based on fear rather than love? What kind of God is that? It's, it's not the God of the Bible. Look how, look how he responds to Abram. Does he turn away? Does he dismiss his complaint? Does he get mad? No, it's a beautiful interaction. Abraham says, how are you going to come through for me, God? God's response is emphatic. He says, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. In other words, you will have a son of your own flesh and blood. In the Hebrew, it could be literally translated as, you will have a son from your loins. So the text is emphatic. God hasn't forgotten this promise. So we need to remember, God's delays are not God's denials, but opportunities. They're opportunities for us to grow in trust and in maturity of faith. See, it's not hard to trust God, right, when everything is going as we want, when it feels like God's coming through for us. But what happens when our life takes a turn? What happens when we're wondering, where's God in all of this? See, it matters greatly where and who we put our trust in. And so it was important for God to remind Abram that he could put trust in the promise. So why? Why is trust important? Well, because trust is the foundation. It's the heart of the Christian faith, is it not? If we don't trust God and all he says and all that he says he will do, we have no faith. Now, how can I say that? Look at verse 6. Abraham believed, Abraham trusted, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Trusting in God equals righteousness. See, all of the outflows of the good and righteous Christian, uh, Christian faith, the Christian living, okay, loving justice, loving mercy, loving others before ourselves, upholding a high ethical standard of right living, these all come from one place, trusting in God, trusting in his promises, trusting that he is faithful to us. Abram was considered righteous simply by believing God, by faith, by trust. Now think about how hard that would be for him. Ten years have passed since he first heard that initial promise. It would be another 15 years before Sarah and Abraham would give birth to Isaac. How agonizing each passing day must have been for them, waiting, waiting and holding on to that promise. 25 years of waiting. Some of you in here probably haven't even been alive for 25 years. What would it look like to have faith in God who would be true to his promises and true to his word if it takes years to answer? So how does, it, how does Abraham find, find it in himself to trust? Well, God says to Abraham, you will have a son. Don't believe me? Let, me? let me show you. And he takes him outside. And he says, number the stars if you are able. So shall your offspring be. Silence from Abraham. Now, Abraham, interestingly enough, he was probably familiar with the stars. Uh, he came from the land of Ur, which we know... Um, was a, was a nation where they worshiped the moon. And so this is probably not the first time he's looked up at the night sky. In fact, he's probably done it many times. But something's different this time he does it. This time he's in the presence, not of the moon, but of the God who created the moon and the stars and the heavens, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Almost 10 years ago, I found myself in South Africa on an ocean conservation research internship uh, for those of you who don't know, I used to be a marine biologist. Um, and so I was out on a boat 
uh, five days a week. Um, and so one weekend, us interns, we took a trip to um, a private game reserve, okay? And, uh, and we stayed in the bush camp, which is quite literally a camp in the bushes. Okay, there's like no fences or anything, the animals are all around you, and you're just like right out in the middle of the reserve. Um, and we took a, a walk that first night, and I'll never forget the sky. Uh, here in Toronto, we have a ton of light pollution. We can count the stars, right, in Toronto. In Africa, you can't count the stars. Uh, it, was, it was breathtaking, it was amazing. And I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you look at the glory of creation, and you see the handiwork of God. It's so humbling. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So how is it that Abram believed? Was he just overcome with emotion, looking at that night sky? No, I don't think so. I think it was the power of God. Just as Peter, stunning confession in Matthew chapter 16, the, the apostles are trying to figure out who Jesus is. Is he a rabbi, is he a, a prophet? And Jesus asks Peter, he says, who do you say that I am? What's, Jesus, what's, uh, what's Peter's response? He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, son of the living God. Now, how did Peter know this? Jesus responds, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that's Peter's old name, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Christian, you know this to be true. It wasn't human arguments or wisdom. It wasn't good works adherence to a high moral code that brought you into a good relationship with God. Flesh and blood cannot reveal the compelling glory of the gospel to us. No, it's the will and work of God to bring us into right relationship with him. And it's always been that way. This is why Paul can write in Ephesians 2 that it's by the grace of God that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The Apostle Paul also writing to the church in Rome, further explores this concept of righteousness by faith, and he uses our passage as an example. Romans chapter four is basically Paul's exegesis of our passage today. Uh, starting in verse 20, he says, no unbelief made him waver, him as Abraham, made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised, uh, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul sees Abram's faith and righteousness as not just for himself, but actually for all Christians. Believe and it will be credited to you as righteousness. This is the model for all people of all generations. All those who trust in God. Believe and it will be credited to you as righteousness. This is the gospel. Abram was to trust in God's promise of a son, God's promise of a family and a land to dwell in. We're asked to trust in the ultimate capital S son of Abraham, if you will, Jesus Christ. And the forgiveness that he offers to us through his life, through his death and resurrection. So Jesus would bring this promise to Abraham to its full, ultimate fulfillment. Through him, we are all sons and daughters, spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. Indeed, Abraham's family would be like the stars. Trust in the sureness of the promise. Because Jesus has come. He has come to fulfill it. 
promise started. Now, God promised Abraham a son and a family, uh, but he also promised something else, right? He promised him a land for Abraham's family to dwell in. And so Abraham wants to know in verse 8, how am I going to possess it? How am I going to get this land? How am I to know I shall possess it? And God's answer comes in two parts. And I'm going to start with the second part. So after he asks for a list of animals to be prepared, God gives Abram an overview. He gives him a snapshot from 10,000 feet of what's coming for Abram's family, uh, the, the Jewish people. What's going to happen? Well, they're going to find themselves in a foreign land, which we now know it was Egypt. They're going to be enslaved for centuries until God's judgment comes. And then they're going to be freed through the events of the Exodus. And they're going to enter into that promised land. Uh, And now that promised land is currently inhabited by a number of different groups, which in this text are lumped together as the Amorites. Okay, so that's the summary from God. That's what's going to happen. So why tell Abraham? Well, because sometimes in the great wisdom and sovereignty of God, his promises unfold not just over a couple years, but over centuries or even longer. See, God's promise to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's family was going to begin with that natural-born offspring of Abraham and Sarah. Um, and I already mentioned that, that that would take 25 years from our, from our text, or from, from Genesis 12, sorry. 25 years of waiting. It's a long time to wait for something. A long time by human standards. But God is not limited by human standards, is he? No, God measures time a lot differently than we do. See, God is showing Abram his plans and his promise go far beyond Abram's life. God had big plans, not just for Abram, but for Egypt, for Canaan. He causes the rise and fall of kings. All of these things are being knit together, the tapestry of God's story and plan for humankind. God was telling Abram, look, you get the privilege of knowing more of the story than anyone else right now. But you're not actually going to live to experience it. You're actually only going to see the very beginning. You're not going to live to see the fulfillment of your people coming into the land. You're not going to be there when I eventually run out of patience with the Canaanites as they defile the land with their wicked practices of child sacrifice and other terrible things. You won't see your people come into the land. But I need you to, to, to trust and wait patiently. Wait on the promise that in you, Abraham, this promise has begun. Now will you trust me that I'll bring it to completion? How do you think Abram felt hearing that? See, we get the benefit of seeing how God did, in fact, complete this promise. Many centuries after Abram's life, he sent his his son, born a son of Abraham, born under equally impossible circumstances, one could say, the divine son of God who would ensure that all the nations would be blessed. Grace Toronto, wait patiently, on the sureness of the promise. Because we too have been given a promise, have we not? Just as Abram was. I'm going to read a couple passages for you. One from Isaiah chapter 65 and one from Revelation 21. And as I'm reading this, I want you to, if you, if you want to close your eyes, listen to the words, listen to God's word to us. Listen to God's promise to his people. Okay, Isaiah 65. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, 
her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it to the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is God's word to us. This is God's promise to us. It's beautiful. It's amazing. If you travel, like me, and you enjoy traveling, which I think many of us probably do, you might have experienced something odd that I experienced, and that's that the time leading up to the trip is sometimes just as exciting as the trip itself. Um, Like having that trip to look forward to, it actually changes how you live in the present. You find yourself happier, maybe. Maybe that colleague at work you normally run out of patience for, well, somehow you you find them less annoying. Because you know that in a week, you're not going to see them for a while. Um, Or the car that cuts you off, you know, during your commute to work, you're like, you know what, it's okay. I'm going to be on the beach in a few days. You're going to be commuting to work still. (laughs) Take that lane, it's fine. Um, See, living in light of a promise, living in in the hope of something beautiful to come, it should change us, should it not? It should change us. We should find ourselves as Christians more patient, (laughs) more gracious. If we really believe what's described for us in Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21, if we believe that that is our actual destiny, if we believe that that is actually God's promise for us, it should change us. This was the great hope that the church has had for over two millennia now. Every generation of the church since the book of Acts has seen themselves as living in the last days, as living in anticipation of the return of Christ, the restoration of all things, of heaven and earth. Yet here we are. They didn't experience the full restoration of all things, but they trusted in the promise. We may not see the return of Christ. We may not see the remaking of all things new in our lifetime. But we've been asked to trust. We've been asked to believe in the risen Jesus. So Abraham was given this promise as an already but not yet moment, that the redemption of the world was actually beginning through him and through his family. But it wouldn't fully come to pass in his lifetime. And so too, we also live in the reality that the kingdom of God has arrived. It has come already, but not yet. It's here, but it's not fully here. 
And so we wait, we wait for Jesus' return when all things will be made new. That has to change us, it has to change us. So we've seen the promise is sure, so trust it. We've seen that the promise has started, so live in light of it, be changed by it. Now let's look at the promise sealed by God himself. So God's response to Abraham, his instructions are to fetch a number of different animals um, and prepare them. Seems a little odd to us. Um, However, in the ancient Near Eastern uh, culture, it's very clear this is a covenant-making ceremony or a covenant-ratifying ceremony. Now, interestingly, all of the animals mentioned are actually going to find significance later on uh, in in Leviticus. You'll find that they all have uh, a role in the the sacrificial system, but here they're not particularly sacrificed. They're just just cut in half. And so the Hebrew expression in verse 18 is, when it says God made a covenant, would actually be better translated to cut a covenant. Kind of like how we say in English, like to cut a deal, to cut a covenant, except here you're you're literally cutting the animals in two. Okay, and this is a common practice, and Israel's neighbors all practiced this. They would have understood that this would be a covenant ceremony where you cut the animals and you lay them out, and then both parties would walk between the animals. Okay, so Jeremiah actually describes this for us interestingly. So Jeremiah chapter 34 Uh, verse 18 to 20, it says, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, and I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the field. So to walk between the two animals was to say, if I break this covenant, if I break my word, let me become like the animals. Let my flesh become like food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the field. In other words, I deserve death if I break my word. Okay, ancient covenants are pretty intense. <laughs> um, and so just like today, though, like, like a contract, if you break your contract, uh, it, there's, there's serious consequences. Okay, you may not become like you know, food for birds of the air, but there are serious consequences to breaking a contract, just like there are serious consequences to breaking a covenant. Now, what's interesting here is look in in verse 17 and 18. Um, What passes through the animals? We have a a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Now, this is what theologians call a theophany, and this is basically a physical manifestation of God's presence. And so think about Moses encountering God at the burning bush, Uh, Think about the pillar of fire and cloud that protected the Israelites as they were fleeing from Pharaoh's army. Um, Watch Prince of Egypt if you haven't. You'll see it there. Um, Think of God's holy fire descending on Mount Sinai as the law is given. Deuteronomy 4.11 says, the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven. So, what's odd about this covenant ceremony? Who walks between the animals? Only one party. And this is... This is amazing. <laughs> this, is, this is the gospel. This is the whole New Testament summed up in one story. Okay, let me explain. Or let me actually allow Tim Keller to explain because he writes things much better than I do. This is how, this is how Tim Keller describes what God is saying to Abraham in this moment. God is saying, if I don't do what I say, may my immutability experience mutation. May my immortality suffer mortality. May my infinity suffer limitation and finitude. May my power 
suffer powerlessness. May the impossible become possible. May I be cut off. May I be destroyed. May my body be ripped to pieces. This is God saying this. Now here's the kicker. Okay, archaeological and historical evidence tells us that when a king and a vassal, a vassal is like a lesser king or maybe a defeated king uh, or a servant, when they enter into a covenant, either both walk through or the lesser party. If the king walks through by himself, when God walks through by himself, he says, I will take on the curse of the covenant for both of us. So if I don't follow through for you, Abram, if I don't keep the promise, let me be cut off. But also, let me be cut off if you don't do yours. You see that? Centuries later, from Abram's time, centuries before Jesus' life, Isaiah would write that the suffering servant, who we now know to be Jesus, would indeed be cut off. Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 8. 7 to 8. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Abraham had no idea what it was going to cost God to walk through those pieces alone. His power became powerless. His immortality did suffer mortality. The impossible became possible. God died. God was cut off from the land of the living. Not because he failed to keep the promise. No, it's because we failed to do our part. And what is our part in all this? What is it? Well, it's to trust God. It's to trust in his promise. It's to trust in his word. So here's, here's the application for us. Okay, let me try to land the plane. Our, our problems are real serious problems. They come because we don't trust the promises of God. You struggle with worry. You don't trust God's wisdom. You're anxious about everything. You don't trust God's power and God's sovereignty. You struggle with anger or bitterness. You don't trust God's justice. You're jealous about what others have. Are you constantly dissatisfied with your life? You don't trust God's providence. Do you hate yourself for the things you've done or not done? You don't trust God's love. You don't trust his grace. So how do you trust then? Well, I think just like Abraham, you have to go to God. And you have to say, I don't know how you're going to come through. I don't know how you're going to make good on your promise. This is the start of real faith. Okay, think of the story in the Gospels when the man comes to Jesus and he asks him to heal his son. And Jesus says, of course, of course I can heal him. Uh, but just believe. And the man says, the father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. And what happens? Jesus heals him. Why? Because that's faith. That's the gospel. The gospel is that people that think that they are truly blind, sorry, people <laughs> who think that they can see are truly blind. And the ones who say, I'm blind, are just finally beginning to see. The ones who think that they have lots of faith have actually very little. The ones who don't have much faith, the ones who say, I don't know if I can believe, but I want to believe. Help my unbelief. That's faith. That's real faith. And I understand, I get it, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. It's hard because we look at our lives, we look at the world around us, 
what do we see? Do we see the beautiful promise, the beautiful thing that God has promised to do? No, we see suffering. We see evil. We see brokenness everywhere. We cry out with the saints in Revelation, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long do we have to wait? Isn't the iniquity of the world enough? Here's the answer. See, centuries after Abraham, darkness came down again when God sent his own son into the eye of the storm. On the cross, Jesus would drink the cup, the full cup of God's judgment, the full cup of God's wrath, the cup filled with our iniquity, our sin, our brokenness. He would die the death that we ought to have died. He would become like food for the birds of the air and beasts of the field. Why? So that the promise could be fulfilled. So that Abraham's family, which is us now, Abraham's family would be a blessing to all the nations. See, Jesus is the greater exodus. He comes through the waters of death just as the Israelites pass through the waters of the Red Sea only to come out on the other side alive. And he frees us not from enslavement by political powers or world empires, but from the spiritual dark forces and sin, the things that run rampant in this world, the things that cause all the suffering and the mess we see, the forces that would seek to destroy us. He frees us from their hold so we can begin to cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. And he's bringing us home. He's bringing us home to the promised land, a real geographical land, not not political Israel as we know today, but the entire earth will be our promised land. The new heavens and new earth. This is what Isaiah and, and John in Revelation talks about, where suffering and evil are no more, where every tear will be wiped away. Grace Toronto, this is the gospel. This is the Christmas story, is it not? That God came into this world on a mission to rescue us, to rescue humanity from sin and death. So go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. He won't turn you away. You can trust him. You can put your faith in him. Believe in the promise. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are the God who fulfills the promise. And you're the God who we can come to no matter where we are. You won't turn us away, but you'll show us the way. You'll show us how we can believe. God, help us. Help us in this Christmas season as we, uh, we know there's so many things we could be focusing on. There's so many things pulling for our attention. It's a busy time of the year. God, we want to look to you. We want to look to Jesus. We want to remember the promise. We want to live in light of the promise. Help us, God, to do that by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well done. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Ryan is one of our interns. Uh, he's uh, pursuing his uh, theology degree uh, while working here mm-hmm. with us. Um, he has a particular interest in the Old Testament, which may have come out a little bit. I had to cut a lot of stuff out. In this uh, sermon, uh, editing his sermon uh, was the most fun part. We have a few questions for you. Uh, we sure. don't normally um, uh, require our uh, interns to take questions, but he has asked for it. So uh, I'm, sure for punishment. I'm sure you're going to give it to him. Uh, what does... Uh, credit to him as righteousness mean, and why is that so important that it is quoted again by Paul? Well, uh, credit to him as righteousness. So it's, it's the imputation of righteousness to, to the believer. So we believe that we don't bring anything 
We don't do any work in our salvation, just like how God passed through the animals on his own. The Christian faith, in, in the sense of our salvation at least, is not a partnership. It's, it's all God. God does all the work. And so we need the righteousness of Christ, his perfect righteous life to be imparted to us, imputed to us, and it, it does when we believe. So we, we don't bring anything to him, but his righteousness comes to us. Uh, okay, here's a long one. <laughs> does this promise made by God resulting in the inevitable suffering of Jesus diminish the fact that Jesus wanted to suffer and die in his own free will to save us from our sins? Mm. If he had to, I think he's qualifying, or she's qualifying their own question. Uh, if he had to die and suffer anyways because humans didn't hold up their promise, then dying for our sins seems like a byproduct instead of the intent. I'm confused by the question as well. <laughs> so I, I, I think the question is asking, like, why? Why did, why did Jesus have to su- suffer? Is that a fair? I don't know if that's a fair understanding. Um, I think what they're saying is because it's a promise of God telling us that this is the inevitable providence of God for Jesus to diminish it, does the inevitable providence of God to which Jesus submitted in any way diminish the willingness of Jesus to die? Mm. Yeah, I, so I, I don't think Jesus wanted to die, actually. <laughs> um, like, if you, read, if you read his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's like, if there's any other way for this cup to be passed on, like, please, I don't want to do this. It's, it, you see the, the, the humanness of Jesus in that moment. Like, he's like, I, I know what's ahead of me. I know what the cross is going to entail, but I, I don't want to do it. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a testing moment, actually, for Jesus is what it is. Um, and, uh, and what does he say? He says, but not as I will, but as you, as you will, right? And so he submits to the Father's will. So I, I think there's, there is a tension there, though. Like, I think there is, Jesus recognizes that it is going to cost him his life, and it's not going to be pleasant. But, but he submits to the Father's will, and he says, not as I will, but you will. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Ryan. You did great. Give him a hand, everyone. <laughs>